Uh, you know, if you look at different medical studies, and, uh, uh, or, uh, or at least if you Google it, it turns out that having good relationships is good for you. It turns out if you have good relationships, uh, it, it's beneficial to your long-term health. Here are three things that uh, good relationships with the people around you uh, lead to. Number one, less stress. Good relationships in your life allow you to handle stress better, allow you to be more constructive in dealing with the stress in life, give you areas and places where you can talk about the challenges you face. So having good relationships in your life uh, can lead to less stress. Stress. Having good relationships in your life can improve your health. People who have quality relationships get ill fewer times during the year. And people who have good, strong relationships and friendships in their life, when they do get ill, recover more quickly. Now, don't look at the people around you who have been struggling with the flu this year. That's not nice. Get a friend, will you? I mean, no, that's just not cool. Finally, lastly, and maybe most importantly, one major thing that we should note, people with good relationships and friendships and family relationships in their life, by and large, they live longer. They live longer uh, having relationships, good relationships in their life. Uh, it goes without saying, all of us want to have good relationships in our life. In fact, that's the problem. For, we say, well, we don't have any. That's the issue. Uh, well, what does the Bible have to say about having good relationships? It turns out the Bible has a lot to say about having good relationships. And the passage we're looking at today in Ephesians 4.24 or 4.25 through 5.2 tells us all about what the Bible has to say about good relationships. And in fact, in some ways, tells us uh, the manner in which we can enjoy them. And so I want to look at just a couple of different ways the Bible tells us about good relationships. So let's start in verse 25. Start at the beginning. It's a good place to start. First of all, good news is the fuel for good relationships. What does the Bible tell us about good relationships? First of all, good news is the fuel for good relationships. Look what it says again in Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, we don't have time this morning to go all the way back from Ephesians 1 up into Ephesians 4.25. But primarily in the book of Ephesians, when the Apostle Paul, the author by God's grace, is talking about speaking the truth, he's not saying generally be truthful. He's saying tell the gospel. Tell the truth with a capital T. Tell one another, speak to one another, good news, Jesus saves sinners. I want you to think about a verse you probably memorized when you were very, very little. It's John 3.16. And some of you are saying, oh, I saw a guy holding a sign that said that in the football stadium. I've always wondered what it said. I'm about to read it to you. And you say, why am I reading John 3.16? Because you'll discover sometimes when you try to remember something, you immediately forget it. So I'm going to read John 3.16. Actually, I'm going to read John 3.16 all the way to John 3.19. Listen to what the Bible says about good news. For God so loved the world. Who does God love? The good people, right? God loves the world. Okay, but he has a special kind of love for the good people, right? No. For God so, say it out loud, you memorized it. For God so loves the world. Okay, we could stop there, sermon's over. If we could figure that one out, we'd move the ball, right? But let's keep going. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever has the most potential might someday believe in him. I should actually just read it and not mess it up. Okay, here we go. 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Does God intend to condemn the world for their sin? I just read it. Okay, but now we're getting a little uncomfortable in here, aren't we? Okay, well, let's keep going. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. God is going to condemn some for what? Not believing in Christ. Condemnation comes from the rejection of the one who came to save. But what the intention, God, is, I love the world. I don't want to condemn the world for its sin. I'm going to send them my son. God's love is overflowing for the world. It's not temporary. It's not in case they believe in me. It's not I love them because they have great potential or because they receive my son. He said, no, I just love them. That's good news for those of us who find ourselves in the world and are sinners. If you're not sure who that is, it's you. God loves sinners. He loves to save sinners. He likes to let sinners off the hook by the work of Christ. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Condemnation comes because we reject Christ. But, G- but God loves the world. Jesus has descended from heaven to earth on purpose to express his unending, unequivocal love to us. And he wants us to understand the manner in which he came and have that good news define how we relate with one another. He wants us to take the understanding of the the way in which he came to the earth, the way in which he came to the world, he humbled himself to love people who would not receive him, and he says, I want you to take that and make that the manner in which you relate with the people around you. He says the fuel, we learn here, the fuel, the, 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 that which is going to propel the kind of relationships the Bible wants us to have is to be relationships that are propelled by good news kind of love. Good news, Jesus saved sinners, Jesus saved me kind of, of love. Now, if you look again at Ephesians 425. We'll go back over there from uh, John 316. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And, And what he's doing here is he's saying he wants our language to be seasoned with and informed by the fact that Jesus has brought us together as a body of believers, and we need to remind each other over and over and over again, good news, Christ has saved you and is making you more and more like him each and every day. He wants us to speak the truth seasoned with love of the good news over and over and over again. Have you ever had somebody remind you how much Jesus loves you, even in your brokenness, and you finally got to the point and you said to him, you know what, I think I've had enough, I'm good. Have you ever had enough reminder that Christ loves you? Have you ever got to the point where you say, you know what, I don't need to hear that Jesus saves sinners like me anymore. This will never end because we will always need to be reminded and spoken of about the love that Christ has given us. And we're to speak this truth uh, to one another. In fact, the Apostle Paul is quoting from an Old Testament passage when he quotes, speak the truth to one another. It's from Zechariah 8.16. This is what he says in Zechariah 8.16. These are the things you shall do. 
speak to the truth to one another. Render in your gates that, uh, uh, excuse me, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares, declares the Lord. So what's interesting about the Zechariah passage is the prophet explains this is how the people of God are supposed to operate. And what's interesting is he has been describing what the new, renewed Jerusalem will be like. So the prophet is saying someday Jerusalem will be renewed and the people of God will be gathered back together. It's like the last verse of how great thou art. That's what he's saying. That's what he's doing. And he says, and in that place, in that place of renewal, we will speak the truth to one another. We will speak good news to one another. He's saying this is what the ideal people of God is like, is we constantly remind one another of the good news that Christ saves sinners. You wonder what you're going to talk about in heaven. There will be lots of things to talk about. But every now and then you're going to talk about, you're going to shake your hand and say, can you believe he saved us? You look at what he did. This is unbelievable. This is amazing that he would redeem us. And we could live in a place such as this. And what the, the prophet is saying, knowing what we're going to be like there, make our conversations like that here. Overwhelmed with the goodness of Christ, overwhelmed with his redemptive work, that we communicate to one another good news. Christ saves sinners. This is what an ancient theologian said about it, speaking the truth to one another as a body of believers. His name was Chrysostom. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. He's been dead for almost uh, 2,000 years, so he's not here to argue with me about it. If the eye sees a serpent, does it lie to the foot? If your nose smells a deadly drug, will it lie to your mouth? Or if your tongue tastes something bitter, will it lie to your stomach? Well, no, that's not how your body works, is it? And what he's saying, then, then as a body of believers, this is how we must be. We must be truth tellers. Good news, warn one another when we're falling into difficulty and we're falling, in, falling into sin. But good news also when we see one another discouraged to be reminded that good news, Christ has saved sinners uh, like us. So he gives us some examples over in Ephesians 4, 25 and 26 of what this truth telling looks like, what the speech looks like in the body of believers. So let me read the list again. There's a number of things he mentions. And uh, what, what maybe I should let you do is just scratch one of them out, but I'm not going to let you do them. They all count. Ready? Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anchor. anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. And down in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Okay, let's start with the first one. He says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Where does anger come from? Have you ever thought about it? Where does anger come from? It's easy to understand when you, where anger comes from. You just have to ask a little kid, why are you mad? What's well, not fair? That's what they'll cry out, a little four-year-old. What's not fair? Tommy got to play on the toy longer than me, and he's mad. Why? Because life's not fair. Thankfully, when you grow up and get older, life becomes fair, I guess. <laughs> Anger is about fairness. Anger is about justice. Something has been done. It's wrong. It's Im impeding me. It should not be this way, and I'm upset about it. 
Anger is, on the good side, a reflection that we're made in the image of God, that we feel that things should be just, things should be equitable, things should be right. And when things aren't fair, just, and right, we get angry about it. And we say, this isn't right. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. This is unfair for me or unfair for others. And, and anger comes out. And what the Bible says is, be angry and do not sin. Meaning this, it's in our anger is when our sin will often uh, show up. Again, the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians is quoting from an Old Testament passage. He's, qu- he's quoting from Psalms 4.4. 4. Psalms 4.4. 4. This is what the psalmist says there. I'm going to read it. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Or think about it. So the psalmist is saying here, uh, don't be angry, but don't sin. In fact, go into your room, close the door, and be silent. And why would the psalmist say that? Well, what he was leading up to this phrase is what he had to say earlier in the psalm, in verse 2 of Psalm 4. Men, how long will my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He was being pursued by his enemies. The psalmist was having all these people around him saying all kinds of lies about him. And it wasn't fair. All these things they were saying, they weren't true. They were lies. He had every right to be angry because all of his enemies were lying about him. And it was undercutting his authority. And this is what he says. But know that the Lord has set apart for the godly, for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. So what did he do when all of these things that were unjust were happening? God, you take it. God, you judge between them and I, and I will, I'll let you handle it. And then he follows up with verse 4. So in your angry, don't sin. Go into your inner chamber and be quiet. Meaning what? I bet you God's going to handle his business. He has a trust, a reliant faith that God will handle it. In fact, God will handle it better than he could. And so he says, be angry and do not sin. He's not saying be angry. He's saying, finally, take the injustice that we feel and know, give it to God and say, God, you make this right. I trust your your justice and your righteousness. Look again over at Ephesians 4.28. And by 28, I mean verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. A couple of you are smart. And he said, thankfully, the sun never goes down. It's sunny somewhere. Son, what are you saying? He's saying, get it figured out in a hurry. Don't leave an opportunity for the devil. See, when we think about leaving an opportunity for the devil, we think of a lot of different things. Number one, we think of all the people out there who are make, leaving an opportunity for the devil. They're going to movies they shouldn't go to. They're involved in activities we don't think they should be involved in. They're involved in witchcraft or seances or they read their horoscope in the paper. You say, oh, you're going to leave a foothold for the devil. What does the Bible here say leaves a foothold for the devil? Holding on to our anger. He says, don't leave space in your life for the devil to work. Be done with your anger as quickly as you possibly can. This doesn't mean arbitrarily if the sun is going down that you somehow have to figure out your business. No, what he's saying metaphorically, as soon as you possibly can, you need your anger handled. There's three ways your anger can be handled. Here are the three options for your anger. Are you ready? I couldn't think of any other options. Number one, you go to the person that you're mad at. You tell them they're wrong, and they agree with you. 
It happens from time to time. You told them the truth, offered them grace, offered forgiveness, they agree with you. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Every, it happens, we should give it a go. Never give them a shot if you don't tell them, guess what, I'm mad at you. Why? You're a gunky. And they say, you know what, you're absolutely right. I'm a gunky. Whatever it might be. There's another option. You go to the person you're mad at, you tell them, I'm angry at you, and they say, well, guess what, you're the one that's wrong. You hear them tell you that you're wrong, and you say, oh, you know, you're right. I am wrong. Will you forgive me for what I did as well as being wrong and mad at you wrongly? And they say, of course I will. And the anger's handled. Again, you're laughing. And when does this happen? Not often enough. But at least we had a conversation. What's the third option? You just let God handle his business. You say, well, I don't know if I'm going to ever get resolved to that person. Or worse, as happens more often than we'd like to say, that person has now gone the way of all people. And they're in the ground somewhere. And now there's never going to be a conversation. Well, at some point, he is saying, you've got to either resolve it with that individual, but many times that's not possible. The psalmist and the Bible here agree, it's time to trust that God will handle it. He will make all things right. One day you will say before the Lord, Lord, you made it fair. And we have to trust him. When he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, it's not putting the burden on the person who has wronged you. The Bible is putting the burden on us to trust God is going to make all things right. And he doesn't do so, minimizing the things we deal with. Don't give Satan an opportunity. Don't give him a foothold. Handle your anger as quickly as possible. Satan tells you in your mind, you should be mad because you are right. I'm right on this. And Jesus says into us, why be right? Where's the fun in that? Why do you need to be right? Resolve it quickly. Give it to God quickly. All right, first way that we speak the truth and let the good news fuel our relationships is to address our anger with the good news of the gospel. We don't have to make everything fair. We can let God handle the areas where we have been wronged, which are many. Secondly, the second thing, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, being honest with his hands. He said, good news. You don't have to have more stuff. In this day and age, when the, when the pa- passage was written, there were many servants who would get uh, work now and again. And when they didn't have work, they didn't call up the unemployment office and go on unemployment. When they didn't work, they didn't eat. And so what many of the servants of that time would do is they would work and they would pay their own way. Between jobs, they would steal. And the Bible is telling folks, he's saying, you don't get to steal anymore. In fact, what I want you to do is work even more diligently so that you can go to no longer being a thief and actually being one who is generous. The Bible this year is calling the good news to to change us, not to simply make us uh, no longer want to steal stuff. He is saying, I want you to be generous. Good news in Jesus and us can make us generous with our resources, with our words, and with our time. And he is saying we no longer need our relationships fueled by who has the most stuff, but instead we can say, good news, I have enough in Christ. I work with my hands and I can be a generous person because I know uh, that I have enough. Look with me at verse 29 of Ephesians 4. It 
Verse 29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So he's saying the fuel for our relationships is the gospel and how we speak to one another. We speak to one another not in corrupting ways, but rather in ways that build up, that we might give grace to one another. Maybe you've heard this proverb spoken to you, probably by your mom. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. You've heard that before. This passage doesn't say that's not a bad idea, especially as a kid. That's a good idea. This passage says something wholly different. He said, if the gospel is true, have something nice to say. He's saying, no, don't just keep your mouth shut. I don't have any, I can't talk to that guy. I don't have any good things to say. And the gospel says, really? Really? Christ came from heaven to die for your sin. You can't think of one nice thing to say? That's interesting. He says, no, the, the conversations are salted with the good news that Jesus uh, can be generous in us. He can encourage and strengthen us that we can now be generous, not just with our stuff, but with our words for one another. He's saying, look for ways to build each other up. Be diligent in ways to build each other up. Maybe one of the reasons that guy bothers you so much is he hasn't been built up. And maybe God is moving in your life to build that guy up. To encourage him and strengthen him with, with your words and with reminders that Christ has saved one even such as him. That we might offer truth to one another. Generosity to one another. Words to build one another, one another up in the gospel. This reminds us of what Jesus says over in Matthew chapter 5 beginning at verse 2. I'm going to read a short section of this. This is often referred to as the Beatitudes. And this is what uh, the gospel can do in our hearts, and these kinds of attitudes are what are required uh, for us to be generous with our words. Here's what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Meekness, mournfulness, hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, when the good news moves in us, this is what happens. We become meek because the gospel tells us how, how much we need Christ and we finally get off our high horse. We become mournful because there are times in our life where we realize just how sinful we have been. And just how much grace was required to atone for us. We hunger and thirst for righteousness because we're not home yet. And it's in this attitude of brokenness and humility and meekness that we actually have the energy and the power to build into others. We will never pour words generously in others when we're trying to finally get them to measure up to where we are. That's not the picture that is being described here. The picture that's being described here is the guy lowest on the ladder pushing the guy above him higher. We're using words saying, go higher, I want you to go higher. And he's saying, but you're so far down there. Don't worry about me, you just go. That's the, the spirit here is the lowly one, the humble one, the broken one, the one who needs the Savior the most is pushing the higher one as, as high as they can go. 
As one good friend of mine said about the body of Christ, he said the body of Christ is a contest. It's to see who can dive to the bottom the fastest. And that's what's being described here in our speech. He's saying we build each other up, not so that because we are built up. We build each other up because that's our hope for one another. And coming out of meekness and brokenness and humility, we do that. We're generous with our words and kind with our tone. We put away corrupting talk where we tear others down. We build one another up and we give grace. Good news is the fuel for good relationships. Jesus saves sinners like us. He calls us to let go of our need for justice, let go of our need for stuff, and to be generous with our words. Good news, the gospel is the fuel for our relationships. So this is important in the church. We're going to move on to verse 30 here. But more than just being important that we might get along really nice, we have to understand that there's a priority for God himself. So the second idea here is God's spirit desires good relationships. Look at verse 30 of Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with malice. God's spirit desires good relationships. And he says here, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And many of us are wondering, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? And he's, he's quite evident, quite clear here. Verse 31, these activities, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, these all grieve the Holy Spirit. Once again, Ephesians 4 here is quoting from the Old Testament. The author is quoting from Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10. And I'm going to read a couple of verses here. This is what it says in Isaiah 63, verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. They being Israel in the wilderness after they had left Egypt. Under Moses, wandering around 40 years, waiting to go to the promised land, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy, and he himself fought against them. We read here later in Isaiah 63, he says this, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? We discover here in Isaiah 63, the Holy Spirit was dwelling in the midst of the people of Israel. And he's saying in the midst of the people of Israel, the Holy Spirit was dwelling and he was grieved at their rebellion. He said, I saved you from Egypt. I walked you through the Red Sea as a form of baptism to identify you as my people. And then now in the wilderness, I have provided for every one of your needs. And yet you still rebel and the Holy Spirit was grieved at that. The question is, does the Holy Spirit live in us as the people of God? What's the answer there? Yes, he does. That's what it says at the end of verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Every single person who has put their faith in Christ for salvation has received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself dwells in every single believer. As much as he dwelled in the tabernacle of the people of Israel, the, the presence of God dwells in every single believer. And he is saying, I am with you. I know the contents of your heart and your mind and the motivations of your soul. I am with you. 
The Holy Spirit never goes on break. He never punches out for lunch or takes a union 10. He is there all the time. When you're doing something really naughty, he doesn't cover his eyes. He is always there, and he is saying, I am with you, and he loves being with you. And he says, but in your presence and in my presence, don't grieve me. Walk in a manner with one another that says, I have the Holy Spirit, and I want to live in a manner that recognizes I have the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would say this from this passage. The Holy Spirit in us looks with great interest at what is going on in our hearts regarding others in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit in us looks with what great interest what is going on in our hearts regarding the people of God, the body of Christ. Why do I say that? Because look at verse 31. How to grieve him. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. What's the hard part about these things? The difficult part about these things is usually when we feel or have these emotions about people, it's not because they've been awesome. The problem with bitterness is generally it's because we have a good reason to be bitter. The trouble with slander, and slander is just saying something terrible about somebody else to somebody else. Did I do that right? Is the math right there? It's saying, this is, can you believe what he did? He did this. What's the problem with slander? Usually it's at least 80% accurate. And so in our minds, no, I'm just being a good friend to warn them to stay away from this guy. The problem with these things is not that we know we're being evil. The problem is what we have done in our mind is because of the evil of this other person. We've said it's okay for me to be filled with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. Clamor, uh, maybe some of your translations are brawling. You say, well, when is there brawling in a church? I guess you've never been to a business meeting. It's terrible. Our business meetings, by God's grace, have been wonderful, but it's not always the case. He says, don't grieve me. By holding on to bitterness. Bitterness that in your mind, I have every right to be bitter. And the Bible is not saying you don't have a right to be bitter. What's it saying? You don't need to be. You don't need to be. I have every right to be angry. I have every right to hold on to my wrath. And the Bible says, yeah, but, but, you, but don't. Because the Holy Spirit is in you. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 1. There's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you've heard of them. A man named Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And this was all the rage at, at that time. It was this huge deal going on in the Jerusalem church. It was really cool. Everybody was selling a property and bringing in the, so they could uh, pay uh, for the expenses of the people. What happened is, uh, long story, well, now it can't be made short. All these people had gotten saved. They were from all over the world. And they wanted to stay in Jerusalem and stay with the body of Christ. But many of them had traveled. Their homes and their work were some other part of the world, and they didn't have food. They didn't have a place to stay. So what people were doing was they were selling their property and bringing money to the apostles, and everybody was eating. They were buying food so everybody could eat and have a place to stay. So everybody was selling their stuff to fund so the church could stay together in Jerusalem. 
and Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were moved by God. He said, oh, we got to do this. we got a field. We're going to sell it. All the cool kids are selling their fields and giving their money to the apostles. What they did is they came, Ananias sold the field, and he brought the money to the apostle uh, Peter. And uh, let's just say, for example, Ananias sold his field for 50000 bucks. He brought the money to the Apostle Paul, and he gave the Apostle, uh, I should say Peter, gave the Apostle Peter $45,000. He kept back 5000 bucks. But he told Peter that he sold the field for 45000 bucks because he wanted everybody to think he gave the whole field away. And what happened? God killed him. Anybody ever read that story and feel like God overreacted a touch? I mean, the guy gave money away. Shouldn't he get a thank you card or at least a tax-deductible note from the church saying they could take the appropriate deduction on their why, why, did, why did God react so strongly? Look at verse 3 of Acts 5. Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The issue wasn't that he kept some of the money. In fact, Peter makes the point later. It was your field to begin with. You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to give the money away. And you didn't even have to give us all the money. But you shouldn't have lied to the Holy Spirit. So it was your field, it was your money, do with it as you saw fit. The issue is, you thought the Holy Spirit in you took a break when you decided to make yourself look better than you actually are. What we understand from this is in us, the Holy Spirit in us, understand we need to, we need to see that the small sins we think are no big deal, are a big deal. And a lot of times the big things we don't think are a big deal. Best way I can know to illustrate it is this, just uh, sort of anecdotally. You can know, if you read the newspaper, do people read the newspaper? If you read the um, interwebs, you'll discover that from time to time really important people in the church Related to Christianity will do really stupid things. Have affairs, steal money. Really well-known people. This happens from time to time. And you find it very discouraging, don't you? I mean, do you? I do. I find it very discouraging. Uh, leaders of large churches, leaders of large ministries, they'll do something silly. What, what is wrong with you? This, and we, what we tend to think is like, this is going to uh, ruin the reputation of the bride of Christ. This is going to destroy this church. This is what's funny. We've seen this in a number of churches. Uh, significant leaders have fallen away, had, had major sin issues in their life. What's funny? The churches keep going. But gossip, slander, and maliciousness in a church will decimate it. We have to understand, the, the big concern is not the one person everybody knows doing something lousy. That generally doesn't ruin a church. In fact, for those of us in churches, that motivates us to get back on the game, get back on the ball. What destroys churches is bitterness, wrath, clamor, and slander. There are countless churches closed today because as a body of Christ, we sniped at each other over and over and over again. And most of the time, we thought we were being good. I just need to let people know how to pray for this terrible sin in my brother's life. Tearing people down, gossip, slander, maliciousness, the absolute best way in the scripture to, to decimate a body of believers. And this is why the Holy Spirit takes it so seriously. So what should we do? The Bible gives us some great ideas. If the gospel is true, let's do these things. Look at it in Ephesians 4, 28, 29. Did 
Did I say 20? I'm totally lost today. That somebody moved the numbers around in my Bible. Um, verse 32. Be kind to one another. Does it seem like something to be written on a kindergarten wall? There's a t-shirt campaign going around a lot of public schools and it's t-shirt. All it says on you, have you seen these? Dude, be kind. And it's, it's an anti-bullying initiative. Just be nice to each other. And it started in the Bible. Church, be nice to each other. Just be kind. Tender-hearted. To, what, what does tender-hearted mean? Tender-hearted means I will give you to the benefit of the doubt. And even when I see brokenness and sin and rebellion in you, I'm going to be tender towards you the way the Father is. Oh, that, man, I hope God give him victory over that. How does that happen? Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. I'm sorry, what? Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Good news, Jesus has forgiven us for everything we've ever done wrong. Good news, that is now the fuel for me to forgive for everything that's ever been done wrong against me. No one's saying that's easy. No one's pretending like we're going to take things lightly. Oh, no big deal. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying the, the way in which we overcome these grievances against the Holy Spirit is to extend to one another the same thing Christ has already given to us, forgiveness and grace. You have been given, as a follower of, of Christ, a high calling, and you have a purpose that is greater than standing up for your own rights. Your purpose is to extend the love and grace and forgiveness to the people around you. It's to look as much as the Spirit might allow, like Jesus, to the people around you. To spend the rest of your life denying yourself your rights. God's Spirit desires good relationships. When we're talking to another individual about Susie or Sally or Billy, the Holy Spirit didn't go away and go get coffee. He's there and he has an opinion. And his opinion is, if you've got something to say to Billy, go talk to Billy with forgiveness, tenderness, and grace. Good relationships. Number one, good news is the fuel of our relationships. And secondly, God's spirit desires good relationships. Finally, look at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. We're going to close with this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So finally here, uh, in terms of good relationships, God's gift of Christ models good relationships to us. That's what he says. Be imitators of God. Become like him. Become like God in both action and attitude. Love others the way that Christ has loved them. That is, he made himself a sacrifice and an offering. Do you see that at the end of verse 2? He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Why is an offering fragrant? Because it's burning. He gave of himself as a burnt offering. That means it's fully consumed. He gave all of himself, 100% to us, fully consumed as an act of righteousness to wash away our sin. We have to understand this. If Christ is to be our model of good relationships, I've got four or five things we must understand and believe. Number one, we have to understand our sin was so bad 
God had to die. We have to understand our sin was not merely just bad enough that we need to make amends or try to do better in the future, try to make up for it, try to do more good than bad. That's not what our sin did. What did our sin do? Our sin was so bad, God had to die. And some of us are sitting here going, my sin wasn't that bad, so you got problems. Good relationships are going to be hard to get to if your sin didn't require God's death. Number one, we have to understand our sin was so bad that God had to die. Number two, we have to believe that his sacrifice was so good, all our sin was washed away. And even your husband's sin and your wife's sin, it's all washed away. It's irritating, isn't it? Even that coworker who's a total slouch goes to a different church probably. He's like, I can't believe he's a Christian. First 15 minutes of the day, he kills it. And then the next seven hours and 45 minutes, I don't know if he does anything. Because the boss usually comes in for the first 15 minutes and then retreats to his office, right? Facebook is on the computer. Oh, now it's getting real. All right, never mind. We'll move along. We have to trust his sacrifice was so good it erased all our sin. These two things are critically important. First of all, my sin killed God. But the second part is critically important. His sacrifice was so good my sin is washed away. This does away with any false sense of pride or arrogance. Why? My sin was really, really bad. And so was yours, by the way. But it also does away with any sense of self-pity or self-condemnation because his sacrifice was that good. So what does this allow us to do? It allows us this, number three. We now have the freedom to actually plumb the depths of our sin because we know we will never get to the end of God's grace. What if you discover tomorrow some horrible character flaw? That would be devastating. Let me give you two tips on that. Number one, everybody else already knows about it. They're just praying you will see it. But you discover tomorrow some terrible character flaw. You'll like the Patriots or something. I almost went on a football tangent. I just want, to rec- want you to recognize I'm using a lot of self-control right now. <laughs> I forget what I was going to say. Were you, uh, are we worried about finding out that we have secret sin? Finding out we've been wrong? We, we sometimes are. We don't want to discover what's wrong with us because we're going to be devastated. But we can, if Christ is who he says he is, if Christ has done what he says he has done, I will not find despair when I find sin. What will I find? More grace. The way this works is we worry worry to open the mail because there might be a giant bill. But what we discover in the kingdom of Christ, every time there is bill, there is more funds to pay it. And this generates in us hope. We, We can actually never reach the end of God's grace, we can gleefully charge in to find out what all these horrible things are going on in our heart. Because we know there will always be enough grace to cover every bit of it, and God will use it to transform our hearts. Why is this important? Number four. Do I need to review the three? Understand our sin was so bad God had to die. 
Number two, trust his sacrifice was so good it washed away your sin. Number three, this gives us freedom to plumb the depths of our sin because grace will never run out. And number four, what happens? Since we know our sin and we know this enormous love of Christ, I now have what I need to pour love out on others. See, what we keep thinking is we have to get our act together so I can finally serve others. Did I just, that's not what I just described, did I? You will discover in the scripture the people who most jump into serving and leading and engaging with others in the gospel are those who are most aware of their need of Christ. And he's saying the pattern of the Christian life is not to figure our sin out so we can figure out how to live a righteous life. We should. But what he's saying is we're going to spend the rest of our life learning what our sin is really like. And we're going to find more and more of the grace of God. This is what one writer says about this list of rules, so to speak, that we see in Ephesians 4. He says this, virtue and vice lists, negative and positive injunctions of a similar kind to what we've read here in Ephesians 4 are found in both Greek and Jewish literature. However, the framework of motivation supplied by the gospel is what makes this teaching distinctly Christian. Do you mean to tell you that again? Please do. He's saying lists of be kind, get over your anger, don't be bitter. These kinds of lists occur in both Greek and Jewish literature at the time. What makes these lists here distinctly Christian is the fact that we're motivated not to be right, but we're motivated by the gospel. Jesus saves sinners like me, so I don't need to hold on to bitterness anymore. Jesus saves sinners like me, so I can talk about how great that guy is when everybody knows that guy is not that great. So finally, this writer says this as a result. Costly, sacrificial love, then, is to characterize believers in their relationships with one another. Costly, sacrificial love, then, is to characterize believers in their relationships with one another. This, just, this simply reminds us from, of Matthew 18, the parable of the ungrateful servant. The servant was forgiven of a debt of millions and millions of dollars, and he would not forgive his fellow servant a debt of a few dollars. And what uh, the author of Ephesians, what the scripture is calling us to here is to be the servant that says, I've been forgiven of so much, I can pour that out on the lives of others over and over and over again. The more I am aware of my sin, the more I understand the love of Jesus, the more I understand the love of Jesus, the more I can pour love out on other believers. All right, three things, and then we're done. You ready? Just three things to take away from this. There's more. I'm sure you're thinking of other things, but this is what I thought of. First thing that I thought of was going through this is, number one, Jesus crosses heaven and earth to show us grace. Jesus journeyed across heaven and earth to show us grace. So can we make a phone call? And it's funny, when I said that, you know who it is, right? You know the number. So he crosses heaven and earth to make things right by his grace. And, and all I'm saying, can you make a phone call and say, you know what, I'm sorry. It's time for this little war to be over. Whatever I need to do, let's be done. You'll hear the phone hit the floor on the other end. Maybe. Or maybe it was hitting the wall. 
It's not your problem. Make the phone call. Think about Jesus on the cross. Think of how much he loves you and think of how much love that generates in our own heart. The second verse of how great thou art always gets me. We love him. We trust him. We believe him. Can we let go of our right to be resentful and bitter? I'm not saying you're wrong on this one. Somebody has wronged you big time. They owe you a bunch of money. They said something bad about your spouse, about your kids, your car. They said your deer wasn't that big. I don't know. You're right. How about that? I'll just give it to you. You're right. You win. When you look at Christ on the cross, do you have the ability to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to let that one go. I don't need to be resentful and bitter. One philosopher said it this way, resentment and bitterness is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. Finally, last thought, and we'll close with this. Jesus has a full-time job right now. He stands next to God, and every time you blow it, which has been at least a dozen times since this service started, he stands there and says, don't worry about it, God, I got it covered. Righteous, good, cleans. Satan comes in, are you sure? I mean, that was really bad. He goes, yeah, I paid for it. Take a hike. Full-time job is to defend you and me before the Father. And he loves it. He's not doing it because he doesn't have anything else better to do. He's over and over again, defending us. No, they're good. They're righteous, covered it, blood-bought. They're good. Oh, that was a doozy. Oh, my lands. Yep, still paid for. And we would go to another person and tear down another believer when our Savior is working full-time to do the exact opposite about us. And we're going to take his Holy Spirit and have a conversation with so-and-so about that Yahoo. Let's be done with that. That's not how the Holy Spirit rolls. Thank, thank the Lord that's not how our Savior rolls. And we fall into it, let's ask for grace and forgiveness. And let's extend to each other grace and forgiveness. But let's just say, you know, I'm going to talk about Bill when Bill is standing there. I, my apologies to all the Bills. I, I'm thinking of any Bill in particular. Jesus defends you to God forever. Do we really want to drag the Holy Spirit into a gossip, a gossip conversation about somebody else? Do we really want to be tearing down another believer? In reality, that grieves our own heart, and we know it grieves the Spirit.